Welcome to the Hillside Community Church Podcast. Wherever you're at in your faith, we hope this episode encourages you. If you enjoy the listen, let your friends know, and we'll catch you next time. There you go. Good morning. It's great to be with you. Uh, we have been in a series in First Peter for a while, and today we're going to conclude that series I wanted to do a little more in Peter on the topic of engaging the world, uh, but we've run out of time. Uh, So, we have been trying to gain a sense of wonder, or Peter is trying to infuse in us a sense of wonder, into this sort of beaten down group of Christians who've been ostracized socially and culturally and politically, and he's trying to explain to them, do you realize that you're the people of God? Uh, The verse that sort of started us out in this series is Peter saying this to us, you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people of his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. You're a new race. We're all related, not by blood, but by his blood, Peter says in chapter 1. We're a priesthood, which we all have a special, privileged, sacred access to God. We're a nation. We have a national identity. It's not based on ethnicity. It's not based on geography. It's based on allegiance to the king. And we are his special possession. God's treasure. All things belong to him. The whole earth is his. But he claims us as his prized possession. So, Peter is trying to say here, you're an entirely new people with a new politic, a new lineage. What Christ has done in your life is not an addition to your life. Uh, It's not uh, an enhancement to your life. You have to be born into it. You got... All new DNA. Everything about your life is radically transformed. The way you think about your history and your lineage, all different. So that you are actually a light in darkness. You proclaim his light, his marvelous light in darkness. It's It's a night and day shift. That's how radical this is. There's no way to embrace this new identity and not have an impact on the world. You will be like light in darkness. And so he wants the people, the church, the churches that he's writing to, to realize the power of their presence in the world, even though they're being ostracized by it even though it's hostile to them. 
It's so radical, Peter says, that you are strangers and exiles. We've looked at this a number of times. Uh, In other words, you can't completely ever identify or belong or feel at home anywhere in the world. We look like we are from somewhere else. The way we live makes us appear as if we're from somewhere else. If you've ever visited a place, and I've had the opportunity to visit a few sort of interesting places When you're a foreigner and you're out of town, you're noticed by everyone. You you can't go anywhere, not even in a car. They notice you when you're driving in a vehicle. They notice that you're not from here. You stick out. And you know, there's a human trait in all of us. You watch strangers closely. Right? Just watch Dennis the Menace. With Walter Matthau. One of my all-time favorite movies, trying to get my granddaughter in it, getting her to start liking it. When that stranger comes on, I mean, it's just all eyes. He sticks out. Even the town notices him. People approach him like, who are you? Where are you from? Strangers are noticed. They attract attention. They attract a little extra scrutiny. Peter says, you should be especially mindful that people are watching you. Now, as strangers and aliens, in other words, though you have lost certain rights and privileges and positions and power, and, you know, because of your Christian beliefs and values, you know, you lack say, you lack leverage or rights, Uh, As Peter's even going to say, you may even not have freedom. You may lose your freedom. But none of those are essential for you to be who I'm calling you to be. You do not need position of power. You do not need freedom of religion. To have the powerful, effective witness that I'm about to share with you. And Peter's going to give us basically two things, two very, very, I call them basic things because they're just not that complex. You know, in a very complex world that we live in, the complexity at multiple levels, Peter's going to say, there's two very, very simple ways to make a powerful impact on any society. And there's two words that I want you to just keep in mind. First one is war. The second one is surrender. If you have those two things in mind, you can make an impact uh, as a believer. In fact, I'm going to say this. As a Christian, you will. You will know where to make war, and you will know where to surrender. So the first one in 2.11, look what Peter says. I urge you as sojourners and exiles, abstain from the passions of the flesh, which war against your soul. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify your Father. All right. This is sort of the internal battle. 
So as an exile and a foreigner, Peter is saying, you're not just an exile and foreigner in society. You're an ex- <laughs> you have desires in you that are foreign to this new life God has given you. You're exiles from the way you used to think, believe, the things you wanted, things you desired, and things you valued. They're strange. And that's, that, that strangeness creates a battle inside of you. Once you become a Christian, immediately this war uh, begins. <laughs> uh, so radical is this new identity that not even your old fleshly desires or natural instincts uh, can run your life. I have a new DNA. I have a new authority in my life. My own selfish desires don't rule me anymore. The idea of the word desire here means an uncurbed, um, an uncurbed desire. So it doesn't just mean a, a sinful desire, we think of fleshly desires. It could be any good thing that we just take too far. A lot of our lives, uh, we have categories that sort of always throw us off. We have sinful habits that destroy us maybe wreak havoc on relationships, but we also have obsessions. We've taken good things and made them out to be more important than they should be, and they ruin us too. That's what the word sort of suggests. It could be anything evil, but it could also be anything good that you just take too far. You take a good thing and you get obsessed with it, and it becomes so dominant in your life it takes over. And you really are scared if, it, if you lose it. You get scared if you lose it. It's, it sort of captures your soul. And Peter says, this is where the war ought to be. You angry? You got a little fighting spirit in you? Turn it inward. You live in a society like the one we live in? Your battle's internal. Uh, Rosaria Butterfield wrote a book called uh, The Gospel Comes with a House Key. And she's talking about how we impact people in our life as believers, people close to us, neighbors, workers, co-workers, any, anyone. Um, and um, she uses the phrase that we often use as believers when we're talking about the outside world, love the sinner and hate the sin. And she says, uh, it's far better to love the sinner and hate your own sin. I've never forgotten it. I love that line. It's a great thing to remember. Hate your own sin. Fight your own sin. She adds this. It's your own sin that will do you in, not someone else's. That's what Peter's trying to say here. You live in an unholy society? Take the war inward. Fight the internal battle. So Peter says, you've got to know where the fight is. You're not fighting the world. Because it looks really horrible and unattractive when Christians obsess about the sins of other people. Peter says, deal with your own obsessions. So, you know, you're going to make that practical. If the people in my life, and I mean all of them, 
every single person that I have to interact with in the world, quickly, long-term, surface, or deep, they all need to know that the battle that I see in the world is the one in me. They can tell by the way I live that my fight is inward. It's me trying to be what God wants me to be. Do the people in your life know you're really trying to be what God wants you to be? Can they tell by the way you act and speak and carry yourself? Your language, your values, the selflessness, honesty, hardworking, respectful of people should be obvious. It's not difficult to be different. I've told you this many times. It's not difficult to be different. And if people around you don't know it, something's definitely wrong. All you have to do, literally, is watch how you talk. Watch how you speak about the opposite sex. Be honest. These are basic thing. I'll tell you another simple one. Just stop complaining. You complain at work? You're just miserable? Devastating to a testimony. Let me say, Peter's trying to say, what God has done in you is so radical that a war has, has kicked off inside of you. And you're fighting that battle, and that's where your energy has to be because you know it'll ruin you if you don't. But that internal battle, it's not just internal what God has done for you. Whatever it is, it will come out. People ought to be able to see it. You might privately consider yourself a Christian, but you don't outwardly live like one at all. Peter says, that's not what I'm describing at all, because I'm saying that what's happened inside of you will be seen. It's an old Puritan writer, uh, like 1690, who was, he said, you know, you may say that you're a Christian, but he said, your horse will know it. (laughs) That's remarkable. That means everything in your life will know it. Your pet will know it. Does your car know you're a Christian? Does your car even... I think this guy's changed. I'm safer on the road. Because you'll be more compassionate. You'll be less intolerant, less irritable. More understanding. There's a kind of a joyful conviction. You know, you live with a kind of a joyful conviction, but not a judgmental disposition. Uh, You're not self-righteous, not holier than thou. I always tried to, when when I'm in the world, whenever I'm in the world in any setting, especially when I worked in the world, I always was very confident about the boundaries I had for my life. I knew where I was going, where I was gonna, what I was going to say, what I wasn't going to say, what I was going to do, what I wasn't going to do, what I could tolerate, when I needed to slip away, you know, sort of quietly without making a scene with the people that I work with who were not, you know, didn't live like I lived. Uh, but I had quiet confidence and boundaries. Um, 
Because one of the greatest gifts you can give to people is when they find out that you're a Christian and, and you treat people and you act in a certain way that just surprises them. It's just a surprise to them. Wow, I would have never guessed. That's not like the image I have of Christians in my head. Please don't be what the world thinks Christians are in your world. That's all Peter is trying to say. Um, I remember working on the television ser- series Miami Vice uh, when I was it's in, min- in the mid-80s right out of college. And I was a driver for the set decorator. And um, we had a couple of crews every now and then. Sometimes the shows were really big. And we had to have extra crew. And I'd worked with these guys for two years. Every once in a while, they would have to bring new people into the crew because there was just too much to get done in a week to do the filming. And so um, they had this, um, this gay couple, uh, two, two gals, who would join our set crew every now and then. We had a t- group of guys, and they were, they, were, they, were <laughs> they were not Christian guys. And they let their disdain and disapproval and dislike of this couple. They were actual couple, lesbian couple. And they would join the crew periodically throughout the year. And uh, when they did, we'd have two crews and everyone, nobody wanted to ride with them. And I was a driver and they always ended up with me. And so we spent a lot of time together. I got to know them. And um, we actually became friends. And so one day, this was about a year in, we're driving along. It's just the three of us, the two of them in the back seat. I drove a Suburban, and uh, I was in the front seat. And every day at noon, whoever was in my vehicle, we turned on a Christian radio station. I'd listen to preachers preach. That happened at noon. I let them listen to anything they wanted to during every other time. But at noon, they knew I have it at noon if we were in the vehicle. So I had it on, and I was listening to a pastor, and he was just talking about, I don't know what subject, random subject, and the, the, the two gals in the back, uh, one of them said to me um, while I was driving, he wouldn't agree with our lifestyle, would he? And it just sort of hit me that they would even ask that question, that would take a nerve to sort of ask that question, that they could have that kind of desire to ask it, and, and then I and I said, no, he, he wouldn't. And she said, does, does that mean you wouldn't either? I said, no, I wouldn't. It allowed me real quickly to give my story and testimony about my sin, what I had to be redeemed from, and the struggle, the ongoing struggle. And uh, they were very gracious. We had a great conversation by now, we were close. And then she actually verbalized, both of them did. Um, we want to thank you for treating us with respect in this crew. Because we know the guys don't want us here. It was a moment that I'll never forget in all my life. That's that kind of value of people being very aware of your own sin and not making other people around you feel like their sin is the worst sin in the world. 
It's very distasteful. So the first thing Peter would say, if you want to make a difference, do you know where the real war is and are you fighting that war? I just want to ask a quick question before I go to number two. Here's this. How much of a battle do you even think you're in for your inner life? Are you fighting it? Like are you putting any energy toward winning on the inside? Because that's where the fight is. The second thing I think Peter says, and there's a lot of verses on this, and I got to summarize it very quickly, so I just, I need you to just understand that. Uh, the second word is surrender, because Peter will say here, uh, this word right here, be subject. And he's going to use it three times for three categories of people. He's going to use it for slaves. He's going to use it for all of us, to all human institutions, governor, so social, governal, civil uh, authorities, be subject to them. He'll tell slaves to be subject to their masters, and he'll tell wives to be subject to their husbands. So three times he'll use this word. Um, let me tell you what he has in mind here. He has this idea that uh, because in a social, in, a, in, in the world, we're always sort of looking for position. Uh, the idea of being subject is to submit, to, to come underneath, to take the low position, the idea of being a servant. To all the structures, social structures in your life, relational structures in your life. Do you know how to take the low position? Um, Instead of posturing all the time, sizing people up, sizing situations up, seeking gain and control, Peter says people, people who follow Christ, they fight the inward battle, and they're not always jockeying for the position that serves them. They serve others. Dietrich Bonhoeffer said, the first moment one person meets another, there's an impulse to search for strategic position to be assumed over the other. Remember James and John come to Jesus and say, hey, you think there's any way we can have a little special seat? We can get to heaven. You know, you know what I'm talking about. You know. It's that kind of thing. Peter says believers don't do that. They don't imagine that their influence comes through control and power of any kind. If you happen to have it, great, use it well. We don't need it. And in fact, even if you have a position of power, Peter says, I want you to take the lowly approach. So he'll address the most vulnerable in society, the slaves who were the lowest status, no say, no control, and wives who fared slightly better just slightly. The Greek writings didn't even address these groups. So for Peter or the other apostles in the New Testament to write to them, to address them, slaves, wives, automatically gave them a dignity and a position that said, you matter in the kingdom. You have power and influence in the kingdom. Let me tell you how, even though the world doesn't see you that way. Oh, you have it. You actually have it. 
because of their relationship with God, because of their new identity, Peter addresses them as having kingdom power and position. And even though the society says you have none, I'm telling you, even though they say you have no say, I'm saying you have all kinds of power to be effective in the world. Uh, Richard Bauckham has written an excellent little book on the book of Revelation called The Theology of the Book of Revelation. And in it, um, he talks about uh, the role that these believers have during this incredibly, you know, just complete chaos and mayhem in the world at every level, socially, culturally, politically, economically, religiously. It's, it's, it's just a, it's nuts in Revelation. And he, 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 he talks to these folks because none of them have any power. They can't even buy and sell things. And he calls it, and I love it, a, power, a powerless witness. The overcomers in Revelation resisted the temptations to power in the world because their testimony, their radical transformation that happened in their life, they, didn't, they weren't dependent on power to make an influence because they had a fundamentally different orientation to the world, to the structures and its systems. Uh, Jennifer McBride, uh, I love the way she writes. She says, it's a non-triumphal witness. And then she says this, our righteousness looks best when it doesn't come from a place of triumphalism. In other words, when we're not power grabbing, when we're taking the role of a servant, because we know the ultimate authority behind all other authority. And according to Peter, this is a profound statement, he says. So he's going to say, be subject to every human institution, governors, anyone. Uh, this is the will of God. I wonder what God wants me to do in the world. Here it is. By doing good. You put to silence. By the way, this is wordless. You don't even have say, and you're making a difference. You put to, this, this God loves it when you surprised people. Live as people who are free. Using your freedom not as a cover-up to do evil, this is, this is so apropos to our world right now, for us as believers here. You live as servants of God, literally slaves. Love, honor everyone. That's respect everybody. Love the brotherhood. That's the church. Fear God. That's spiritual. So you got social, ecclesiological, you got spiritual, and you got honor the emperor, you got political. This is how we live as believers. It's the will of God that we subject ourselves, surrender, submit, take the lowly position. But we're free, but we're slaves. So that means the image is about to address slaves after this. What he's essentially done is called us all slaves of God. <laughs> he says, live as free, but as God's slaves. In other words, this is really important for us to hear as we close this series. Freedom is not our master. 
Freedom is not our master. God is. Everything we have, everything we are, is subject to him. I may have the freedom to do anything in any place. He limits my freedom. He determines my freedom. I let the freedom to obey him dictate my life, not any other kind of freedom. I don't need freedom to serve him. I'm free because I serve him. That's what Peter's saying. Our world wants freedom. They want it without restriction and without responsibility, clamor for religious freedom, and do it in a very ungodly way. Uh, Howard Wass, a community uh, in his book, A Community of Character, says, we have made freedom an end in itself and have ignored the fact that most of us do not have the slightest idea of what to do with our freedom. And then he adds, uh, the freer we become, the more desperate we become. That's our world. Looking for freedom without restriction. And Paul says, or Peter says, you can't have that. You're worshiping something. Something's enslaving you. Something you adhere to that you think you'd be devastated without. Something's driving you. So Peter says, you can know the power of powerlessness as a believer. You can know the freedom of servitude, of a lowly position. I don't think Peter envisions Rome becoming a Christian city. Uh, Likely assumed it never would. There will always be injustice. He says, just you you gotta learn to endure that, he says. Uh, He doesn't envision a takeover or tell us to transform society's structures. Even the unjust ones, he's not exhorting that. It's primarily changed by believers who are in the system who are transformed, who know where the fight is, and they know how to be respectful of people, even people who disagree, even people who persecute. I I told you about a book I read some time ago called uh, Why on Earth Did Anyone Believe in the First Century? It's the greatest question. If you know anything about the first century, you're like, how did Christianity get out of the first century and reach the likes of us? It's phenomenal if you've never read anything about that. And uh, it's interesting because he really concludes with, I have no idea how this happened. This historian, his lectures. It was the only religion that came with a price. You paid a price immediately the moment you became a Christian because it didn't fit in with all the other religions and it became ostracized by all the other categories of society in every level. As Peter is trying to say, your marriage, civilly, socially, in every way. Economically, you were rejected. You just couldn't survive. You had no special circumstance, no special position. He says it's just a mystery. There was something so unique about it and so attractive. 
And it really comes down at the end of this book. You know, you're waiting after these lectures, which are pretty sort of intense. You're waiting for these just, just this really solid answer, intellectual answer. And it just basically says, it just came down to the fact that they just were concerned about people and loved them and served them no matter what the heck was going on and no matter what it cost them. And Peter's trying to say the same thing. Do you know how to serve people in every position in life? In your home, in your job, in your government? Even in a society like ours where we have the freedom, don't let freedom dictate who you are. Become desperate and angry and possessive. Don't stress over where it's all headed. Fighting and squirming and belly aching and adopting a victim mentality. Peter says, you're free because you're slaves of God. Be obedient to him and you can do it in any set of circumstances, whether you have say or leverage or not. Even if you don't have freedom, it's a powerless witness. And people notice it. I'll tell you one more story. I'm sorry it's about me again, but it's really all I could come up with for this week. But there's a local business owner that I've gotten to know uh, over the years. And uh, I've done lots of business with him, and he has, uh, I've gotten to know his team and staff. And I started to really take an interest in him spiritually. I invited him to church after a while. I had known him for quite a while before I invited him to church. Um, I'd bring lunch to his staff every now and then to his, to his employees. I got to know them. Uh, and uh, one day I was sitting in his office. I was going to invite him to an Easter service. At this time, even his wife would occasionally whisper in my ear, please try to invite him again. Please try to invite him again. So I was sitting in his office, and uh, I was, my goal was to ask him to come to an Easter service a couple years back. And uh, he finally got around to asking me what I do. And I told him I was a pastor. And he said, um, wow, I didn't know that. I knew you were different, but I didn't know you were a pastor. And then he said this to me, and you take this and apply it in any way, shape, or form that you think it applies to your world. Um, he said, most pastors tell me they're a pastor right off the bat because they want a better deal. And I heard that and I went, ooh. And then you know what I thought? Let me tell you about the internal war. I'm not above that. I'm not above that. God was just gracious and didn't let me do it with him. I said, come to Easter. He said, I will. Came to an Easter service. After, at the end, he waited. I didn't think he would. He's sort of a, he's a, he's a tough guy. He's not a, and he said, um, said, I really liked it, but this is my last time. 
I said, that's fine. You know, Peter essentially wants us, if we're looking for the best example, I'm certainly not that. Uh, Peter says right here, to this you have been called because of Christ suffered for you, leaving you an example so that you may follow in his footsteps. This is ultimately the goal. And you know what's interesting is Peter addresses the slaves, okay, just very similar to the way the other New Testament writers do. But, um, but before he gets to wives, he inserts this, verses 21 to 25, actually. It's as if he's trying to say, we're all slaves. Slaves is the paradigm for how to do life in the society. You're slaves of God. So you never use your freedom, the freedom you have here, as power and leverage in a way that serves you or demeans others. And Jesus is our example of that. And so he inserts Jesus in here, and he uses Isaiah 53, which calls Jesus the suffering servant. Imagine that. The suffering servant. He quotes Isaiah 53 in the verses right after this. As if to say, Jesus is the ultimate paradigm for what it means to be a servant and to suffer even unjustly, without power and without say. And you know, the word example means to, it's the word for like trace over. They would take these big large letters and kids would trace over them uh, to learn the alphabet. And the, the word example English words model and pattern, they don't even come close to really getting the idea that this is a whole new radical paradigm shift in the life of a believer. Not just an example that I, hey, that's really cool to see. We're talking about something radically different in me. In which Christians literally write the large letters of the gospel of the new birth in their lives. He left us a pattern over which we trace our lives in order to follow in his footsteps. And you know what it says in the next two verses? I'll just say them to you for time's sake. He does not resort to anger. Look at verse 22 and 23. You'll see it. Doesn't retaliate. Doesn't strike back. So you say, what kind of power do you have if you're just dominated by everybody? You have that inner war and that power, and you never get, you never, you never turn to self-pity, you never exaggerate, you don't abuse, you don't threaten, and you don't lash out. In other words, you never lose it. Even when it's coming against you in a way that's just, completely unfair. And the second thing that happens is Peter says, not only did Jesus not retaliate, but in the, in, at the same time he was being just destroyed by society. He was redeeming the world. God could take the unfair suffering and use it to save the world. It's mysterious how God uses us when we serve others. 
even though we don't have power, somehow he infuses it with power to, to impact people. So if we don't serve the world like Jesus, then the world will have no means to know itself as the world. The controlling, fearful, power-grabbing, self-centered life. Unless you and I are fighting an internal war. And being a servant to the world. I'll close with this. This past summer, uh, I came across a documentary on the Titanic. And I'd seen enough, you know, on the Titanic that, that doesn't always catch my attention. But... Uh, I was struck by the passion of the guy who was talking about what he had found. And so his name was Dick Barton. He's a salvage expert. He pulled up, it pulled up this leather pouch. Been there 89 years. Uh, with like 20 vials of perfume inside it. Turns out first class passenger, Adolf Seifeld. German chemist had brought them on board. He escaped. He got off. He survived the Titanic. But he didn't bring his, um, these perfumes he brought. And so he's explaining that when you're in the lab with all the Titanic artifacts, everything c that comes up from the Titanic is wet and rusty and rotten and corroded. And the smell is just perfectly alien, he says. It's the smell of death. So the lab is a quite unpleasant place to be. But then we, he says, we unfolded this leather pouch, opened the vials, and out came this fragrance, which he called the fragrance of heaven. And he got really emotional, started to cry. He said there was the scent of flowers and, and these uh, lavender and roses and these fruity flavors, just sort of wonderful and overwhelming, overpowered the room. And instead of being surrounded by dead things, for a moment, he said, the ship was alive again. Just really all Peter is saying is, as God's people, as God's treasured possessions, we have the power to bring life and light to the depths of death and darkness and proclaim the marvelous light of his excellencies in the world. How refreshing it is to the world when we fight our own battles and when we take up the position of free servants. Amen. All right, we got a candle to light. I'm going to do that real quick. So, you know, you have three purple candles. First two, really symbolizing or describing the anticipation of, we have one more to write to do next week, along with this one, we'll do them both together on Sunday. But the pink one is the third one in the Advent, and it's really um, a joy. These have so... Anticipation and hope are these three, and so you do these first two, and then this pink one sort of comes in between them as a way to signify just, all right, stop anticipating. It's a respite kind of from anticipating, and it gives you this sort of joy just for a moment. Did you feel that? Did you hear that? 
<laughs> it's a kind of a joy. There's a joy. And I just thought about, as I was relating that right now, just the joyful conviction that we talked about earlier. Joyful conviction, but not a judgmental disposition. Isn't that refreshing to meet people like that? Joyful conviction, but not judgmental disposition. That's what Christ has accomplished. That's what Peter says. He says we were like sheep going astray, but he has pulled us into the fold, and now we can follow in his steps. I hope you, if you don't know him personally, you'll, give, you'll surrender your life to him today. Let him bring you back into the fold. Let him make you free to obey him. Let's stand to our feet. We'll pray. Father, so grateful for our time together today. Um, I pray you use these words, these final words from Peter to just sort of cement this whole series into our minds, especially as we come into this season and now look forward to Christmas. All that you have done to make us free, we're grateful for the transformation you've brought to our life and the opportunity to be a light in this world, a fragrant aroma. In Jesus' name, amen.